What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. The Corova Milk Bar sold Milk Plus. Milk Plus Velocet or Sintamesk or Drencrum, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. That's Malcolm McDowell with some of his iconic opening narration to 1971's A Clockwork Orange, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. This week on the show, a sacred cow review of the Stanley Kubrick classic. So just a little warning, I've had six glasses of Milk Plus, just to sharpen me up a little bit for the review. <laughs> ready for a bit of the old ultra film criticism, are you? We will see. Also on the show, we kick off our World of Wong Kar Wai marathon with 1988's As Tears Go By. That and more. Take my breath away, Adam. I didn't really feel that, Josh. Ahead on film spotting. Welcome to film spotting. Josh, I don't want to give away what might be the most entertaining part or most insightful part of our review, but were you prepared at all for the cover of Take My Breath Away and Wong Kar Wai's As Tears Go By? I did not see that coming, uh, I'll admit, uh, but I'm very glad I got it because now, Adam, whenever I hear that song, I know this was a cover, but still, even if I hear the Berlin version, I uh-huh. won't be thinking of all those tongues that we saw <laughs> recently when we revisited Top Gun. Instead, I'll have Wong's film. That'll come to mind. That'll be much better. Okay. Hong Kong director Wong Kar Wai is the subject of our next film spotting marathon, probably best known for Chungking Express from 1994 and 2000's In the Mood for Love. Wong is a filmmaker we've long wanted to spend some time with, and we're getting to it now because he's got a new luscious Criterion Collection box set, The World of Wong Kar Wai, and all seven of those titles in the collection are currently streaming over on the Criterion channel. So later in the show, we will get to the first film in our world of Wong Kar Wai Marathon, 1988's As Tears Go By. I've also got a few thoughts on the new Anthony Bourdain documentary I was highly anticipating, Roadrunner. But first, a sacred cow review of A Clockwork Orange. Are we going to get in a Nas scrap over this one, Adam? What exactly is the treatment here going to be, then? Oh, it's quite simple, really. We're just going to show you some films. You mean like going to the pictures? Something like that. Well, that's good. I like to vidy the old films now and again. And vidy films, I would. Where I was taken to, brothers, was like no cine I ever vidied before. I was bound up in a straitjacket, and McGulliver was strapped to a headrest with like wires running away from it. Then they clamped like lidlocks on my eyes, so that I could not shut them, no matter how hard I tried. It seemed a bit crazy to me, but I let them get on with what they wanted to get on with. If I was to be a free young Malchik again in a fortnight's time, I would put up with much in the meantime, oh my brothers. Josh, would you believe this is the fourth Stanley Kubrick movie we have given the sacred cow treatment here on Film Spotting? We did The Shining. We did 2001 A Space Odyssey. We also did, more recently, Eyes Wide Shut, part of our 9 from 99 series. I appreciate the opportunity to revisit A Clockwork Orange, a movie I listed in 2013 as my favorite Kubrick movie over on Letterboxd, much to my surprise, because I would not have been able to provide a single substantive reason why. 
yes, that list is due for updating. What I will always regret, though, is not having the time or energy to prompt you with the intro that you and our listeners and Stanley Kubrick deserve, which is one constructed entirely in the language of NADSAT, or I could have gone the route of the terrifyingly jolly intonation of Mr. Deltoid. Yes? <laughs> well, I think we've already uh, reached our limit of NADSAT uh, references, so that's probably good you didn't do that. Okay. Well, I'm instead going to feature some listener feedback because we haven't gotten this much initial feedback to a review in a long time. Many listeners invested in this conversation, many listeners wrestling with their own complicated reactions and recollections of A Clockwork Orange. David Kolb wrote in, I know a lot of people love Clockwork and hail it as among Kubrick's best, but I have it last on my Kubrick rankings. Now, Kubrick is probably my all-time favorite director, and I still like and admire the movie quite a bit. But with the possible exception of Full Metal Jacket's second half, it's his only film that has never quite worked for me. I've tried but I can't get on this movie's wavelength, and at times the tone simply feels off. Here's Josh Taylor with a story. It was the summer of 95. I was either 14 or about to turn 15. In my freshman high school English class the previous fall, we each had to pick a character or real-life person to dress up as and give a presentation about. One of my classmates, Nick Lockwood, oh, that Nick, what a scoundrel, was really into A Clockwork Orange. Really is capitalized here, too, for effect. And he came to class dressed as Alex. I wasn't a cinephile yet. I doubt I even knew the word growing up in a pre-internet rural East Texas town called, that's right, Paris, but I was intrigued by Nick's spectacular presentation. I don't know if it was actually that spectacular, but, you know, I was 14. The next summer, I slipped out of the local video rental store, I think it was called Sight and Sound Video, with a VHS copy of Kubrick's masterpiece. Like Adam, my parents let me watch just about any movie I wanted, as long as I didn't, quote, repeat anything I heard or saw, unquote, in them. A Clockwork Orange terrified me. For the next several weeks, I had a recurring nightmare where Alex was locked up in an insane asylum, and I stood helplessly by as he successfully escaped and continued his violent crime spree from the movie. I was not ready. It's been at least a decade since I've revisited it. I read the book about 15 years ago, but it still haunts my mind with its unimaginably gleeful violence. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. Cheers, Droogs, Josh says. Here's Michael Green. He's in Dover, Delaware. I'm excited to hear your thoughts on Stanley Kubrick's 1971 film. As part of my personal AFI Top 100 marathon, I'm halfway through so far, I rectified this blind spot recently. It has all of the hallmark traits associated with Kubrick, emotionally distant and dehumanized main character, check. Symmetry, bold colors, he has here the bar and the houses, the fluid camera, the music shop, dangerous world, and the stare. The film was great, and Kubrick pulls off the impossible by turning the source material into a film. But my main point and question for you is how do you grapple with and judge the film's rape scenes? There are three, I believe. I get they are part of the world and story, but they made me feel uneasy, which I guess is the point. But I'd like to hear how you both process these in the grand scheme of the film and specifically how well or not you think Kubrick handles them. Finally, here's Isabel Bishop, who expressed some of Michael's same concerns, concluding, like many of Kubrick's films, specifically The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut, I find clockwork far too cynical for its own good. So I'm going to ask you to tag yourself, Josh. When it comes to A Clockwork Orange, are you David? You can respect the movie, but it doesn't quite work for you. Are you like Josh 
and you'll be now forever haunted by its unimaginably gleeful violence? Are you Michael, who genuinely appreciates it as a work of art, but like many great pieces of art, you find it problematic? Or are you Isabel, who wishes Stanley could be a little less sarcastic and sneering? I resonate with each of these to certain degree, uh, to different degrees for each of them, I should say. And I think if I'm hearing them all correctly, I like this movie better than all of them. Really? And I like it now better than all of them. I don't know that that would be the case. I think, you know, if I had seen it at Josh's age, I think I would have had a very similar response. Um, <laughs> I don't know the context or obviously the kid, he's not a kid anymore, but hearing that a 14 year old is dressing up as Alex is the scariest thing you'd want to hear to me about a clockwork orange. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that the people who would denounce this film, that's exactly what they're worried about. Right. Um, so it's, it's the fight club thing, it, which we recently revisited. And I think both really liked as a satire while recognizing that at least I, I, recognize that others may not see the satire and take from it exactly the wrong things. I think A Clockwork Orange has that potential. Um, it's not last on my rankings because it's risen in my esteem on this rewatch. Um, I agree with Isabel that Kubrick in general is maybe too cynical for his own good um, or just too has too dark of a view of human nature. Um, but I think this is one of his more interesting dark views on human nature. And yeah, we should touch on the rape scenes. Absolutely. I don't know that we need to start there that Michael asks about. So I think I hit everyone there. Um, you know, Adam, what surprised me watching A Clockwork Orange and the reason I feel like at midlife, I'm probably finally ready for it is when I saw it in college, either I hadn't taken enough theology classes yet, or, or I don't know what it was. I had forgotten how theological this film is. Oh yeah. How its basic concerns are original sin, the idea that those are those are the two things, right? The idea yep. for original sin that we're born as broken people into a broken world, and then free will. What ability do we have to turn from that brokenness to choose or reject God's mm -hmm. offer of restoration? How are we going to respond to that? Um, I think this film is absolutely fascinating in the ways it explores those ideas. Every piece of provocation in it is geared towards exploring those questions. Um, and at the same time, I find it a little, I don't hold this against the film because I don't go into a movie saying I, I need it to share my worldview for me to appreciate mm -hmm. it. But if maybe I don't have the sort of all in love for something like a clockwork orange while recognizing the, you know, the, the incredible piece of work it is, it's because I do, as I did with 2001, I feel like Kubrick's cynicism about the human race is kind of, it kind of turns here more than 2001, turns the movie into a big joke. Um, and sometimes you can take that personally as a viewer, uh, but where a clockwork orange to me is kind of like, yeah, I've been really exploring all these questions. This movie has been asking them, providing provocative answers this way, that way of a million different ways of looking at it. But in the end, you know, humans aren't worth it. <laughs> humans aren't worth Humans don't deserve an answer to these questions because we we are just so inherently broken. So it's, you know, it's close to nihilism. It's very cynical. Um, but man, is it well-crafted. And it's the, the thing for me, the question I have for myself in revisiting it, the provocations that I remember, um, are they backed up by thoughtfulness? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, they were on, on this revisit. I remember talking about this same basic dilemma, I think, when we did our Luis Buñuel marathon, which is sometimes this notion of cynicism that's lobbed at some of these filmmakers or the idea that they think the human race is beyond saving. That's fair. And yet I always want to counter with the idea that if that was really the case, why would they even bother expressing it at all? (laughs) You know, I think the fact that it's a preoccupation for these filmmakers ultimately proves that they ultimately have maybe deeper (laughs) feelings or at least a little bit more sentimental feelings about humanity than their work maybe sometimes suggests. But man, I am with you overall on A Clockwork Orange, Josh. I remember, of course, the overall tone of it and certain iconic scenes and images. But as often happens with these Sacred Cow revisits, it ended up being quite different than I expected in that I was sure I was going to see the dystopian social satire that I remembered. A movie exploring, to quote Joker from Full Metal Jacket, as I often do when discussing Kubrick, the duality of man, the Jungian thing. You've got Alex with his barbarity, and viciousness and and lust for the ultraviolet and his wit and intelligence and charm, even somehow a little bit of innocence and his appreciation for Ludwig van. And that then is this representation of society as a whole. It's baseness and sadistic bent under the guise of progress and civility. And while I think that's all there, what I didn't recall at all was how strange Lovian it is. Not just because of all the phallic imagery either. It's in how darkly comic it is, perhaps jokey even at times, but also how politically satirical it is in its rejection of authority and institutions and its explicit insinuation that no matter how you are affiliated or what you claim to stand for, nobody is above exploitation and enacting a little suffering for what you perceive to be the greater good or to ensure that you stay in power. And when we do these revisits, and sometimes we do the series like 9 from 99 or 7 from 76, we always highlight what was the biggest surprise for us. Had we ended up choosing 7 from 71 instead of 7 from 76, and we discussed this movie as we surely would have, a serious contender for me would have to be the way Alex DeLarge becomes dare I say it, a sympathetic figure, (laughs) almost a martyr. And I, I say, Josh, almost only because it's so hard to reconcile the brutality of his actions and the pain he causes with the notion that I could in any way, on any level, feel sorry for him. But isn't that Kubrick's trick here? Isn't that his true provocation here? And I'll borrow to go back to what you were saying about the movie's theology to borrow from Kubrick's own imagery and Alex's own deranged imagination in the story of Christ's crucifixion. Alex goes from being the Roman soldier delighting in the flagellation of Jesus to being Jesus, a man whose, whose message, if you will, whose will is there to be manipulated and used by those who profit from it. It really surprised me on that level. That's the question. You, you know, you'll notice there's a text detail, another text detail when he's in jail uh, first when he's first arrested. I think that's the first time we get a camera shot from his point of view. 
um, where otherwise so far it's always been kind of like a removed distance, even from the, the violence he's enacting. We're a little bit removed from it. This, if I'm remembering correctly, is the first time we're aligned with him. We see the the police who have arrested him and even the family lawyer who comes in but isn't there to help, obviously, mm-hmm. kind of towering over him. And that's the first time you think of him as a victim. So I do think that's there. Um, I do think it fades a little bit as um, as the movie goes on and it shifts into its other sections where he becomes, obviously he's still a victim when he becomes the experimented on with the Ludovico technique that the movie is right. famous for, right? Um, but I think it also kind of starts to, to see him as, the movie actually sees him as just like an experimental figure too. He does kind of become this figure to hang these questions on that I was referring to. Sure. Um, but, but we are asking, you know, at this point we're asking about him, is he an outlier psychopath? Like, are we just getting at the beginning of the movie, you, you wonder like, are we just going to spend a couple of hours in a deranged mind? Or as mm-hmm. you suggested, is he a symptom of this, you know, decadent society that seems to surround him? Is the guy possessed? I mean, the first, when that lawyer, the family lawyer, um, Mr. Deltoid, right? That's, that's the name. Asks him. He's like his parole officer. Is that what it is? I okay. Yeah. I wasn't quite yeah. sure what. Okay. That makes more sense. He asks him at one point, is it some devil that crawls inside of you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, you were wondering, like, what is what is the situation here and how much back to the free will? And once the experiments begin, how much um, of this is his option to transform, to change, if he even wants to. Uh, he has that vision of the crucifixion that you reference because he ends up working alongside the chaplain in prison, uh, played by Godfrey Quigley. And this is a guy who's, you know, a little sketchy himself. He's not only a fire and brimstone preacher, but we get a sense that he's um, might have some other errant interests of his own, let's just say. But he also says this to Alex at one point, goodness comes from within, goodness is chosen. So we mm-hmm. get that possibility thrown in too. And right in the midst of this is when Alex is having that vision. I love how he says, you know, he prefers basically the sex and violence of the Old Testament to the to the preachiness of mm-hmm. the New Testament. Um, and at that point, Alex is still like, you know, he he's still the Alex we knew before. He's just restrained. He's restricted by prison. Then we have the Ludovico technique. And that is kind of where it's forced upon him, his obedience, right? Yes. And so then we have the question, can you transform? Or if it's forced upon you, is that real transformation? And I think that's just fascinating to watch throughout the film, how Alex gets bounced around by these things. But to go back to your, you know, the way you describe him at the start and how can we ever find sympathy with this character? Even if we don't go all the way from sympathy, I think thanks to McDowell's performance, we are constantly mesmerized. And this has got to be, you know, one of the absolute best performances in Kubrick's filmography. I don't think he's thought, we talked about, you know, Nicole Kidman and to another degree, Tom Cruise and Eyes Wide Shut, but I don't think he's thought of as an actor's actor (laughs) at first thing. But man, is this performance by McDowell so crucial because he is in sync. The first time you see him do that stare in that opening shot, close up, pulls back to show the whole milk bar. Um, but we see McDowell stare, you know, that he is in sync with, um, 
everything in this film, the camera techniques, but also the character, the ideas. And this is frightening given the material to see an actor so in sync with this sort of troubling material. But you can't take your eyes off him, even if you want to, no matter what he's doing. It's the performative nature that he has, that he gives even to his horrible actions. Obviously, everyone knows about the singing in the rain routine during the, the early home invasion and rape. But even in less demonstrative sequences like that or or showcase, if you want to use that term, sequences. How about when he's back in his bedroom and he wants to just fall back on his bed? He does this like balletic toss of -hmm. himself. So everything McDowell does, every move he makes um, is, is just... You can't, again, take your eyes off him even though you know you should. There's a malevolence. There's a mischievousness. And I really think that is what makes this movie work as well as it does. It's almost it's almost as crucial to a transgressive film as De Niro is in Taxi Driver, which we talked hmm. about recently. You know, that, that yeah. it's anchoring what the filmmaker wants to do in the performance. I am so with you here on McDowell. And I'll get back a little bit to that notion of free will, too, because I think that's the larger theological question if we want to assign it that term. But I think that then connects to the larger sociopolitical question at the heart of this movie, which goes back to that preacher character, that minister character, as easy as he is to mock. He's also the only one we see who does seem to care for Alex. I think we can say that and who protests his punishment, his his treatment. This idea that then comes through is can reformation, can redemption actually happen without choice? And I think the movie says that that without choice, Alex isn't a man at all. He becomes totally dehumanized. His will is basically programmed, and he's just driven by self-preservation, not unlike another very infamous Stanley Kubrick character. And the big difference between Hal, of course, and Alex is that performance, not the not the disembodied voice, but this majestic presence that really is Malcolm McDowell. There is, I think you said, a grandiosity to him and his his behavior, but there's that gentility that comes through somehow. There's that sophistication. I said innocence, and I think it's because when you watch him early on, as terrible as those actions are, the childlike joy he takes in it, the the wonder almost at the idea that he gets to perform these acts and he can revel in this violence, like a kid who's just found a new toy, that's there. And then by the end of the movie, I think his victimhood only evolves by the end of the film. And that childlike reveling in the violence becomes something different. It transitions into him just becoming kind of like an actual child. I think about the scene at the very end where he's he's waiting for his his dad, basically, right, to feed him the bites of the, the food and acting just like a kid who's ready to take another one. So I'm with you completely, Josh, that I don't see how this movie works, especially because I also feel it is accurate to say that the movie at some point does become about that provocation and wanting him to be a character who represents something. Kubrick wants to hang these questions on him more than I think we ever really feel like Alex. Maybe this gets back to the free will idea more than Alex ever seems to be exerting his own agency. We don't really know how he truly feels about a lot of this stuff. He's there, as I said, to kind of put some of these questions on him. And that's why the performance is so crucial. 
Well, you seem to have a whole ward to yourself, my boy. Yes, sir. And a very lonely place it is too, sir. When I wake up in the middle of the night with me pain. Yes. Well, anyway, good to see you on the mend. I've kept in constant touch with the hospital, of course. And now I've come down to see you personally, to see how you're getting along. I've suffered the tortures of the damned, sir. Tortures of the damned. Yes, I can appreciate that. I think we might read the ending a little differently as I hear you talk, as much as we agree on some of these some of these points. When mm-hmm. I see him, he's sitting in bed in the hospital recovering from after throwing himself out the window. Um, and the minister who assigned him to be experimented on is there yeah. apologizing, trying to get him on his side, right? The, the, <laughs> the gesture you mentioned is so perfect. He needs to be fed. And the way... McDowell pops open his mouth is to me, it's not helplessness. It's not victimhood. I think, I think this is where his victimhood ends actually is in this scene. To me, it's another provocation. It's, it's an insult almost to the minister. I am going to, it's a power play. I am now going to make you completely differently. I'm going to make you feed me in order for my cooperation to not say what the government did to me. That's what that whole scene is about. The minister wants to get him on his side. And that is kind of Alex making that. It's almost like insulting. He's making such a display of popping his mouth open and talking so nicely to him. And this kind of ties back to the word innocence you used, which I think is really interesting, Adam, because I I agree there is something. There are moments um, where you wonder and it's tied to what you mentioned, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9. Mm-hmm. The fact that he has this love for Beethoven, you wonder if maybe that's his saving grace, okay? Now, he's obviously soiled it. This this is what is fueling his, his masturbatory session where he's imagining people dying in his bedroom, listening to the music, and he even imagines himself there with fangs, vampire mm-hmm. fangs. So obviously he's soiled Beethoven's music, but you still wonder if there's, there's a root there um, that's somewhere underneath... Does his love for the music is does it show he has an appreciation for the beautiful and good somewhere under there? And here's where I think Kubrick kind of gives the final really dark joke of the film. It's in the fact that the scientists use Beethoven's ninth during the Ludovico technique. Mm-hmm. So what happens? Then it becomes associated because he's getting pumped with all these drug nausea-inducing drugs. Whenever he hears it now. It is going to cause him to be nauseous. So they've, in a way, ruined his last glimmer of goodness, if you look at it this way. What does right. he say, What does Alex say when it's happening to him and the, his eyes are peeled back by the clamps? He screams yeah. out repeatedly, it's a sin. It's that's, a sin. That's the point where what they're doing to him crosses the line <laughs> to yep. become a sin. And the way I'm looking at it is, is it's because even he recognizes that there's something actually good about his appreci- appreciation for Beethoven. All right. So now let's go back to that final scene. Or, or really, it's just that what's good is Beethoven. It's a simple There's goodness. That. There's goodness yeah. in the world. Yes. yes. Human produced. Let's, let's even <laughs> go even further. Human right. produced goodness in the world. Okay. So, yeah, we go to the ending. He's back in the bed being fed. And what else does the minister do to get him on his side? Brings in the speakers, says, I understand you like this music and plays the ninth. And this is our final clue also that that fall, falling out the window, has knocked the Ludovico technique out of him. He is now back to how he was before he got arrested. We know this because he hears the music. And has no response to it. He's not. He doesn't get nauseous. He enjoys it. 
and it's ringing in his ears triumphantly, but again, transgressively. And so we've kind of come full circle, which I see as Kubrick's final joke is like, yeah, I've, we've explored all these possible avenues, but by the end of the day, we've still got a possessed psychopath on our hands. Yeah, no, there's, there's no doubt about that. But I think here's my counter. One is, even though I agree with you, I like the layer. I like the fact that I think he can be both helpless and provocative in that moment and can be gleeful in the way he is enjoying the food and kind of prodding the man to feed him. There is, I think, still the fact that he didn't really have any choice in what he's doing there. And it is, at the end of it, a photo opportunity. He is being exploited in that moment and didn't have any say in it. But here's the other thing that maybe speaks to why we see the ending a little bit differently. There's one detail that I may be entirely wrong about, Josh, but I saw his transformation as not just being tied to the fall, in other words, an accident, but being tied to some reprogramming they did on him to to hmm. reform him now to the way they want to reform him because now it serves them to have the old Alex back because there's that really great scene with kind of the Rorschach tests with the sentences, you know, and the, the diagrams, the people and those different scenarios. Yeah, yeah. And he points out that he had that really bad recurring nightmare about something happening in his head. And I, I interpreted that as, oh, they've been they've been doing something on him. I've been having this very nasty dream, very nasty. It's like, um, well, when I was all smashed up, you know, and, and half awake and unconscious-like, I kept having this dream. And like all these doctors were playing around with me Gulliver, you know, like the inside of my brain. I seem to have this dream over and over again. Do you think it means anything? They've been working on him a little bit in his brain, and she is now just testing to confirm that it worked, that he is back to the old guy. So that is who he wants to be. So in a way, it's a victory. There's no doubt about it. That's that's the triumph for Alex at the end of the film. But it's tinged with the fact that he really didn't have any say in it. See, and I found that that Rorschach, it's not exactly a Rorschach, but that little no, exercise is, um, to me, I found it a battle between the old Alex and the Ludovico Alex, where there was still, he was, he was essentially, cause he kept going back and forth. He'd give one, you know, fairly benign answer. And then he'd give one giggly, violent answer. Now then, each of these slides needs a reply from one of the people in the picture. You tell me what you think the person would say. All right. Righty, right. Isn't the plumage beautiful? I just say what the other person would say. Yes. Plumage beautiful. Oh, yes. Well, don't think about it too long. Just say the first thing that pops into your mind. Cabbages, knickers. Uh, it's not got a, a beak. Good. <laughs> the boy you always quarreled with is seriously ill. My mind is a blank. Uh, the book. And I'll smash your face for you, your blockos. <laughs> Good. 
And it, it so you kind of see like he's shake to me, he was shaking the cobwebs of Ludovico off. And then by the time we see him the next time with the minister, he's pretty much back to where he was at the beginning. And then this is probably this goes back, you know, to where I think we split on, you know, Kubrick and what sort of a filmmaker he is in general. And, and your point about, you know, why would someone make films at all if they were that pessimistic about humanity i would just say well because they're a filmmaker so it's like it it isn't a prerequisite to like have any sort of affinity for people to become a filmmaker yeah but you're a filmmaker a little bit to hate you're a filmmaker (laughs) care enough to hate because you're a filmmaker and i don't know if i would say i would ever say kubrick hates um but it's you know this is why i still say that star baby in 2001 is coming to gobble up earth it's you know it's it's not like this beatific new form of humanity and i think that's what we're seeing here we're seeing another kubrick ending where it's explored possibilities of humanity, but the end of the, at the end of the day, and maybe he just likes it as a as a punchline to his film. You know, there's so much dark humor on this. I want to get to the humor that you talked about too. That he just liked it as a punchline. Is like we're I'm going to give one last like kind of darkly comic punch in the gut as we go out here. So yeah, let, let's get to that humor because it was the it was one of the things that did kind of hold me back a little bit and here comes another difference i think we have about kubrick um particularly in dr strangelove we haven't done a sacred cow of that we should sometime um, but i know we've talked about it a little bit i think this is another case of kubrick being the smartest kid in the room but not necessarily the funniest and i don't mean that the humor here isn't funny i laughed at a, a lot of this but it was almost like as I was done laughing, he doubled down on the joke. And let me give you a couple examples here. There is early on the painting in Alex's bedroom. Like, apparently this is the painting. You know how in the 70s it was all the big eyes kids paintings that apparently everyone had? Well, in this futuristic England, everyone has a painting of a w- naked woman with her legs spread open facing the viewer. <laughs> it's, it's in almost every room we go in is a variation on this painting. So Alex has one too. And you notice the first time you're in his room that he also has a sculpture that's sticking out of the wall, kind of adjacent to the painting. So not on the same wall, but the adjacent wall. And the way the camera is positioned, this is not what we're meant. Like, this isn't the focus of the scene. Alex is doing something else we're supposed to be focusing on. But if you look in the corner, you'll notice that that sculpture is poking. It looks like it's poking directly into the between the women's legs, right? Uh-huh. So again, chuckled like, man, you know, the production design here is so meticulous. Look at what Kubrick is doing. Sure enough, what does he do? 30 seconds later, we get a close-up. Not only now is the whole screen filled with the painting and the sculpture, but Alex has a pet snake. The snake is on the sculpture, yes. crawling between her legs. So it's uh-huh. like, okay, Kubrick, we didn't need that too. And then quickly, there's a couple more. How about in the other home invasion where there's the giant penis statue? Love it. I knew you were going to say it, and I Adam, love it. it is so funny the first time we see it, because Alex comes into the doorway, and it's just yeah. to the right of the screen, right? This giant ceramic penis. And it's, again... Composition, production design, brilliant. But the scene ends with he has to pick it up after playfully like pressing it up and down a few times. Very funny. Then he has to pick it up and chase her around with it. And it's it, it's even in little moments like when the parole officer uh, sits down on the bed in Alex's parents' room, takes a sip of the water. Yeah. The cup the by the bed that has dentures in it. Which we see before him. Yeah. We see before him. We see him sip it. That's the joke. You don't, we don't need the spit take 30 seconds later. You so repeatedly picked all the scenes that I point to as wonderfully comic. They're all comic, but do you see my point? Like it's, it's, I don't know if Kubrick doesn't trust us because he's smarter and is like, 
I, I, you know, I need to make sure they get this. Or if he just thinks, thinks it's funnier to double down. I mean, you know, I love gags that go on forever <laughs> in a lot of other situations. I'm still laughing about Pee Wee Herman, um, you know, in the balloon gag that goes on mm-hmm. and on forever. But for some reason in Kubrick's films, uh, I, I feel like uh, the humor can be just kind of sat on until it starts to squish the funniness out. <laughs> See, we agree that it's comic, but what you call overkill or going too far with it, I call a certain wonderful inevitability. I don't see how that scene ends. I agree with you that I love the fact that you've got Alex, this brooding character, this malevolent character who we know is going to do something really terrible. And yet the way the camera is framed with him in it, with that woman yelling at him about what he's doing there, that that penis just keeps kind of rocking into the shot it's and, great. and throwing everything off. It's great. Well, for me, the only way that can go then is he's going to have to pick the thing up and attack her with it, you know? And so the joke, the joke keeps escalating in a good way for me, Josh, versus maybe devolving there. I also think as I tie it back to this overall kind of strange, lovey and political satire, it, it hit me that there is this overarching sense of comedy to it, even in how the plot plays out. It becomes almost like Scrooge and the ghosts of Christmas past. I mean, it's so ludicrous that the day he's released from jail, you know, he runs into the old man. He runs in to Dim and I think Billy Boy, right? Two men that he that he attacked and that hate him. And then where does he go home to? He goes home to that that side of the attack. It just keeps getting worse and worse for him in a way, again, that is not remotely realistic. And of course, I know you're not suggesting the movie needed to be realistic, but it's it's beyond a lack of realism. It's it's total absurdity. And this time, I guess I embraced it, Josh. Well, the scene now, the scene that plays out long that I did actually like for its comic potential is when he does go home and meets the lodger who his parents have brought in to leave to live in his room. That's like a slow boil humor where it takes like maybe a minute before they even acknowledge that this other oh, yeah. guy is sitting on the couch. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, he finally has to ask himself, like, what's with this guy? Hey, Dad. There's a strange fella sitting on the sofa, munchy-wunching lumpticks of toast. That's Joe. He, uh, he lives here now. The lodger. That's what he is. He rents your room. So I think that's a, a very funny scene that worked for me. Well... We'll just touch on, or at least I would like to touch on, a few of the Kubrick moments that stood out to me in terms of shot references. And I know some of these occurred after this movie was made, but just in terms of those go-to images for Kubrick, not only did we get that stare and that opening, which is just so disarming and and you're instantly just magnetized by... Like, where in the world are we? Yeah. There's also... The moment, and here's Jokey Kubrick coming through. How can you say he doesn't have a sense of humor? In the that's not what I'm store, saying. That's not what I'm saying know, at all. I, Don't I, mischaracterize. I know, just, just go with it. Yeah, just but people will Come repeat on. that, like I said it. So watch yourself. In the record store, and one of our listeners referenced this earlier. In the record store, we get kind of a 2001 moment. It reminded me of 2001 and other movies too that followed. But that tracking shot through the store, that nice motion that made me think of, I think it's Frank Poole when he's running and shadow boxing on the, the ship 
and the way that it's moving in that circular rotation, but vertically. And then he goes up to the counter. And what do we see in the little compartment right in front of the cash register? 2001. There's there's a record that's actually 2001. So there's Kubrick referencing himself. But that whole Kurova milk bar, of course, makes you think of what you're going to see later in Eyes Wide Shut sure. with that imagery. The slow motion violence by the river when he attacks his own droogs. And at one moment, he bends down and throws his whole arm into one of the men he's attacking. And that's straight out of 2001. Right. And even and the another example where- Another example of Alex making everything a performance, you know, yeah. and Kubrick in the filmmaking aiding him in that. Yeah. Yeah. There's also the seizure like face that the man at the end, the man whose wife he killed and who he left to be confined to the wheelchair when he shakes. It's, of course, reminiscent of what we see later in The Shining when the son is experiencing The Shining, that feeling of it. So there are definitely those. Kubrickian stamps, not just on some of the overall kind of messaging and the tone, but within the camera work as well. Let's return to Michael's question, uh, because I do think it's something that should be addressed, even though it'd be a lot more comfortable to go by. But he asked, you know, what we thought of the numerous rape scenes that are in this film. I mean, ones that were seen in the action proper, I believe in the um, film that Alex is forced to watch. We see one that's uh, recreated and it is yeah, it's very rough stuff. It's one of the reasons I was, you know, <laughs> one of the things I was not looking forward to revisiting this for. Uh, and I think what you could, you know, what you would probably say the way people will discuss shooting something like this, and I've learned from others writing about it, is that, you know, I, I don't know if it's necessarily attentive to the victim's experience in a way that it should be. Um, I wouldn't say that any of them are exploitative. Uh, I think they're actually, you know, fairly clinical in terms of their depiction and vantage point. Um, maybe, you know, the the first instance is of the woman being attacked in the theater by another mm-hmm. gang that Alex and his droogs come upon. Um, that one, you know, there there's a lot of you know, unnecessary, unnecessary nudity, I would say for, for what is actually happening. It almost makes it more of a, an act of sexuality than violence, which I think is where some of the issues become. Um, but it's not necessarily from the attacker's point of view. I think we get a little bit more of that in the singing in the rain sequence, which is why that is one that is notorious. And so many people find troubling is because it is bringing a level of entertainment to what's happening. And it's making us more aligned with what Alex is doing um, than with what the woman is suffering. So, so I do think, you know, Today, you would demand a filmmaker to, if they're going to film something like that, give as much attention and time to um, what it meant for the victim as well. Um, but I do, th- I, I would never say that these were exploitative sequences that Kubrick filmed. I think that's all fair. And I think I would just add that I was actually surprised, as difficult as those scenes were to watch, and they surely were, I remembered them differently in my head, Josh, in the sense that I thought that they really were much more graphic and gratuitous and and troubling than they than they were. It it's actually surprising, as explicit as they are, how much Kubrick leaves to the imagination when he does choose to cut away. And he does it in moments when he forces us to reckon with what we know is happening, but he doesn't rub our nose. And what's happening. And as I said, that that was different than my 
than my recollection of the film. Yeah, it brings up, a uh, you know, an interesting question about the Ludovico technique itself, because you're right. Often what we imagine is is worse than what we see. So, you know, if this were to be done to someone, it, it, we're the impression we get is they are seeing horrible things, which is what's going to transform them. Right. But it's often the gap between the horrible things that would affect us the most. Mm. So that's neither here nor there with, you know, the film itself, but it did, as you were talking, it did make me think of that actual technique and how that might play out in real life. Let's, let's hope we never find out. A Clockwork Orange is currently available on HBO Max and through the end of the month anyway, it's on Netflix. You may also be able to video it at your local biblio or get it through interlibrary loan. Josh, sorry, I don't care if there was a limit. I had to do it. <laughs> If you have seen A Clockwork Orange recently or when you were 14 or 15 and that's good enough for you, tell us what you thought of it. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Safe to say the world of Stanley Kubrick is a bit harsher than the world of Wong Kar Wai. Our Wong Marathon kicks off next with a review of 1988's As Tears Go By. That's next, plus a new film spotting poll asking for the best movie set in the Middle Ages. Stay with us. It is the how to be a better person. When he threw himself into something, he threw himself completely. Why am I here? Am I insane? That's from the trailer for the new Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain, which is currently playing in limited release. It's directed by Morgan Neville, who also directed the 2018 Fred Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? He won an Oscar in 2014 for the backup singer doc, 20 Feet from Stardom. Now, the Roadrunner trailer, Adam just saw this. I was over at the Music Box catching their Lord of the Rings series, and it was one of the two trailers they showed beforehand. And definitely suggests this isn't going to be just about the life and work of Bourdain, the celebrity chef, writer, TV host, but really ask questions about this complicated guy who did take his own life in 2018 when he was 61. Now, you're a fan of Neville's stuff, Adam. I know you've seen both of those films and a fan of Bourdain. So... Is that what you get here? Did they give you a new perspective on Bourdain, your understanding of him, this documentary? Yeah, I think that's accurate. It definitely wants to ask those tough questions, and it wants to paint a full portrait of this really complicated man. Now, here's the problem, Josh, with my note-taking. And I did share with you and Sam, our producer, a photo of my yellow notepad notes that I scribbled down watching this movie, completely unintelligible. Yeah. I'm sure I had something really profound to say about this movie. I didn't know and, you could uh, write in hieroglyphics. I was really impressed. Oh Maybe it will it will come back as I rewatch the movie later in the year. I'm forgetting the specific context of this moment in the movie, but some locals during one of his television shoots ask him if he's 
ready and if he's willing to really commit to this journey and kind of wrestle with some of the past transgressions. I think by the United States, it might be when he's in Vietnam and he says, the least I can do is see the world with open eyes, which very likely was a key line for Neville to include in the movie, not just because it's such a succinct, sober, insightful expression of the way Bourdain approached that project and perhaps all of his work, but also as an expression of what Neville was hoping to accomplish with this project, to see Bourdain with open eyes. And that that translates in a few different ways, including in the overall kind of visual style and structure. There is a real pace to this film. The the cutting is quite fast, and there is a bit of a a manicness to it almost, a hmm. bit of an exhilaration that you feel watching the movie, almost like you're following Bourdain on one of these escapades. The title, Roadrunner, really becomes very appropriate in the sense that you're dashing around in time and going to these various spots, and you're definitely not proceeding in any linear chain of events fashion. There's no dates on screen that I recall, no real milestones. It largely skips over his childhood completely and begins where our collective experience with him began, which is the publishing of Kitchen Confidential. And we only get sort of glances at who he was getting to that point. And from there, it follows this incredibly charismatic, brilliant, troubled man who was full of contradictions. He's a man who always wants to be off the road, which he was on 250 nights a year. He wants to be home with his wife and his daughter. And then, of course, as soon as he gets there, he can't wait to leave. It's this feeling that that something is happening out there that he has to be part of and that that chaos is something that he embraces and really can't live without. He's this TV personality who's also incredibly shy and reserved, and he's known as this kind of culinary luminary, a culinary giant, despite not really being, he would be the first to admit, an incredible chef himself. So all those contradictions and many more are explored in the movie. And Neville grounds the movie right from the very beginning in his ultimate death from suicide. He acknowledges that there isn't going to be a happy ending. And I think he does it through Bourdain's own words, as the movie is largely constructed upon. If you were going to download the audio file of this movie and build a word cloud from it appropriately, I think the most used word in the movie, the one that would be the biggest on the screen, is f- and And that's not just because of Bourdain himself. So again, it feels like it's in keeping with this man himself and the way he kind of approached the world. And I mentioned the sense of mortality and that tragic ending looming all over the movie as sad as the end of the film is the final moments of the movie are myth shattering in a way deliberately and also triumphant so there's just a lot of layers to the film just like there were a lot of layers to the man himself now before we get to that ending what gets us there this final act covers his relationship with the actress Agia Argento and Neville connects the dots in a way from the disillusion of that relationship to his suicide. And there's something in the moment I'll acknowledge that feels a little bit icky as if he's putting the blame on Argento. And 
might have been her choice, but she doesn't have a voice in the movie except for the one that we see in different pieces of footage. So it feels a little unfair. But I'll also offer this, that it's not just a matter maybe of Neville, the filmmaker, connecting those dots, like an investigator who has done all the research and he's come to a conclusion and now I'm going to lay out what I think really happened. It's all being expressed through the voices and the perspectives of the people that Bourdain is interviewing, the people who actually knew Bourdain the best and who knew the details and the problems with this relationship. Of course, it's a documentary and he's the director and Neville is still choosing who he talks to and who gets what screen time and what parts of their interviews he's going to use. So it's tricky as it always is with documentary. But I'll also add that the whole movie seems to be a testament to the idea that there was a certain darkness always present in Bourdain and that his mental health issues nor anyone else's can be reduced to a single relationship or a single action. So it's definitely something that I think will continue to be a dialogue around this film and justifiably. So I've started to see it seep out a little bit on Twitter as more people are seeing the movie. I will just close by saying Josh, that I do consider myself a fan of Bourdain, but I was thinking about it earlier today and it occurred to me that I only became a fan, unfortunately in death. It was, it was only when he died, and I started to see all the tributes to him. Of course, I knew who he was. I had seen parts of episodes. I didn't really have any relationship with him. I, I neither had any negative feelings toward him, nor did I necessarily feel like he was someone whose work I needed to consistently follow. And when I saw those tributes, and I saw how strongly people felt about him and the relationship they had to him and his work— I kind of had to see what it was all about, and I'll always appreciate the fact that you can not only read Kitchen Confidential, but you can listen to the audiobook as I did, and you can hear Bourdain's voice. You can hear his voice says. You can hear the way he embellishes a story and recalls his own past and his own experiences, and I immediately started to feel that connection, and I talked about this a little bit when we were looking ahead to summer movies and our questions about the movie year, I'll just always appreciate the fact that when I started to enjoy his work and I started to watch and read more of it, it opened up an attitude in me, a feeling in me, a spirit to be more adventurous, to be more willing to try things, especially when it came to food. And a quick funny story that I may have shared with you before off air, but my wife and I a few years ago went to San Francisco And so I'm like, well, I got to see what Bourdain recommended in San Francisco. When he talked about it on the show, what did he talk about? What restaurants should I hit? And I'll link to it in our show notes if people out there are curious and haven't seen it. He goes to the place he goes to every time he's in San Francisco. It's a place called Swan Oyster Depot. And he always gets the crab back. Now, for the longest time, Josh, I wasn't even into seafood, much less willing to try the crab back, which he even describes as all the stuff people throw out once they take off the legs and stuff. Mm. It's, in his own words, the brains and fat and magic. Lovely. (laughs) And it really is kind of like this stew in the crab back as a bowl, and you dip bread into it. In the Swan Oyster Depot, you have to wait in line for, and it's just a counter. I don't know how many spots, but probably around 20, certainly no more than 30 in the place. 
and I waited and we got in before it closed. Some people behind us got shut out. You felt kind of grateful that you had the opportunity. And then I get in and I say, well, I need, I need the crab back and I need an anchor steam. Of course, just like Anthony Bourdain would order when he was there. And they're like, we're all out of crab back and your heart sinks, you know? And then they explain, well, actually we're not out of the crab back. We just don't have any right now. You would have to buy the full crab to get the crab back. It's just a little bit more money. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm willing to spend it. I stood in line. I want to try it. If I walk out of here without having the crab back, like Bourdain recommends, then this is a failure. And we're sitting there eating and you're right next to other people. And there's this woman sitting next to me with her boyfriend or husband. And she heard this whole conversation. And then I get the crab back and I'm trying it. And she kind of leans to me and she says, can I try that? <laughs> and, and we didn't acknowledge it. We didn't say it. But I knew that, of course, she was another one just like me who came in there probably only because Bourdain recommended it and said you had to have the crab back. She probably was told, sorry, not available. And then she saw that I got it and she said, oh, I'm going to ask him, can I have some? And of course, I shared it with her. And then she shared some of her oysters with me. And we just had this kind of lovely little moment together. Again, not explicitly stated, but a nice kind of communal experience, all because of Anthony Bourdain and his love for that place. And the idea that I would even be there at all trying that food is really just a testament to how charismatic and talented and I think ultimately generous Bourdain was. So is Roadrunner, if you're like me, similar to where you were, you know, aware of Bourdain and seen some of his shows, but not really totally familiar with his work, would you say Roadrunner is a good place to start? Or would you recommend going the path you did, kind of like getting to know some of that work and then seeing how the documentary presents him? I think you could definitely go the route of just watching Roadrunner because I think it encompasses his life in a way that, as I said, feels right. I know there are many ways someone could approach a movie about Anthony Bourdain, and I don't want to suggest that this is the only way to do it, but it felt like Neville tapped in to something that was really kind of primal and felt like you were experiencing an extension of his own kind of psychology and own approach to his work. That said, if you have the time, I would get the foundation of something like Kitchen Confidential, which gives you some of that background, that pathway to the first restaurants he started working in and to his work as the executive chef of Layal, basically all the things the movie leaves out so that then you can kind of have that experience of living in the moment with Bourdain on screen in a way that's completely different, obviously, than reading about his past. So I think that they would go perfectly together, Josh, if you can do it. All right. Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain, is currently playing in limited release. As I said, here in Chicago, I know it's at the Music Box. Next week here on Film Spotting, we are going to get to the second movie in our World of Wong Kar Wai marathon. It's 1990's Days of Being Wild. We do also have a top five. A week or so ago, I went to the Film Spotting spreadsheet. I penciled in top five dot, 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 and we all kind of took a shot at it. We've got M. Night Shyamalan's Old coming out. I'm not sure I really care too much to see it, Josh, or devote a whole segment to it. So I thought maybe we could do you're sure. a you're, top five. You're pretty sure. I sat next to you when the trailer for it played. Oh, I'm sure. I forget right. exactly what you said, but <laughs> yeah. you were clear. <laughs> That's true. So instead, I was thinking, well, what if we did like our top five movies about aging or top five movies about kids in some way? 
you also threw out, I think maybe it was me, Shyamalan scenes or moments, and you were into that. And then Sam, our producer, threw out some ideas that I promptly ignored <laughs> Not before nice. you, you pitched beach scenes. Tell us about beach scenes. What was the inspiration? I mean, sometimes it's just there right in your face. So <laughs> the whole was, movie takes place on one. That was the case here, right? According to that trailer, some freaky stuff goes down on a beach. So let's go with that. And uh, the more I've been thinking about it, posted on social media, Twitter and Facebook today, looking for suggestions, there are a ton of options. People are pointing yeah. to war movies. It's a little daunting scenes. even. To now think about how to limit them. It's become very daunting. Um, pretty much every genre of film has a memorable beach scene. I think it'll be fun, though, trying to come up with our criteria already. Some debate has arisen about, does a beach have to have sand? It seems like, no, you could have a rocky beach, a pebble beach, right? That counts. So we're not strictly doing sandy <laughs> beaches here, unless you want to. Unless you're going to take that route to narrow your list down, Adam. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Every top five is fraught with these types of perils, isn't it? it you is. have to make these distinctions <laughs> and define your criteria, and that's what makes top fives so fun. So next week, we will have our very fun top five beach scenes and Wong Kar Wai's Days of Being Wild, which, who knows, might just have a memorable beach scene of its own. I wouldn't doubt it. I call it coincidence spotting. It happens all the time here, randomly on the show. If you have a beach scene you want to suggest, send us a note to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at filmspotting. Josh is at Larson on film. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. Also on next week's show, we'll get back to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie, and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of our last massacre. There's something out there, something underneath that sand. Yes, well, I'm hoping to find a certain artifact, a book, actually. What do you think is out there? In a word, evil. All right, if that sounded familiar and you know what film we massacred, go ahead and email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Deadline is Monday, July 19th, and the winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. We've had some listeners daring to question your performance, Josh, and whether or not this actor really was that low-voiced and growly as you. I'm not happy with my performance. I thought I would get closer But I was surprised how low he is in this movie, to be honest with you. Yeah, I I don't think that was the problem. I think, as you astutely pointed out, I just, I had a little too much Stallone. (laughs) You did. And that's never never good. That's just the power of Stallone. (laughs) It's week two of the Cannes Film Festival. We are not recording from Cannes. Wes Anderson's French Dispatch premiered. If you Google French Dispatch, Wes Anderson doubles down you get approximately 7 million results. So you're overjoyed. You can't wait. I'm not, I read here. I'm not Googling anything. No. Wes Anderson and French Dispatch. I don't want to know. So watch your step here. Tread carefully. Some booze, apparently, but also a nine-minute standing ovation. But also we know standing ovations at can really are meaningless. Yeah. I mean, the, the booze, the standing ovations, I, I really don't take anything from any of that. Okay. Other films getting raves out of the festival at least according to what Sam has put in front of me. Koganat is after Yang. He, the director of Columbus, the Golden Brick, winning Columbus, Todd Haynes, Velvet Underground Doc, Mia Hansen loves Bergman Island. Paul Verhoeven's erotic lesbian nun drama, 
Benedetta. Now, I've seen some contrarian takes on Benedetta as well on social media. Ari Fullman's animated Where is Anne Frank? He's the director of 2008's Waltz with Bashir. And Julia Ducourneau, your beloved Raw. Mm. Her follow-up to Raw, Titan. David Ehrlich from IndieWire said, Ducourneau has made good on the promise of her debut and then some, which you are just lapping up like her previous main character devours a raw steak. Yeah, I think it was... I think it was like a rabbit kidney or something like that, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> Let's not dwell on it. But yeah, this I, this is what I love to hear. Still to come as we are sitting here recording, Sean Baker's new Red Rocket and Memoria from? That'd be a Pichapang Rastakun. Of course. The festival jury is headed by Spike Lee. The awards will be announced after the festival closes this weekend. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, their new pairing is Questlove's Great Summer of Soul, along with 1970s Woodstock. Both festivals took place in the summer of 69. They had our friend, occasional contributor to film spotting, Stephen Hyden, the great music critic and author on the show. Just another reason to listen to NPS. I thought he only did guest spots on our show. No, he does other Apparently podcasts. Not. Okay. Well, you know, in fairness, I only met Stephen through the NPS hosts like Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. So I suppose it makes sense that he'd appear with his friends on that podcast. New episodes of the Next Picture Show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. More info at nextpictureshow.net. Speaking of friends, we've got some great friends over on Patreon. We call them more than friends. They're the film spotting family. And for a mere $5 a month as a family member, you get a host of benefits, including monthly bonus episodes. And I am excited to have a little bit of an easier time, a purely entertaining watch, get to maybe turn my brain off. Dare I say, turn my brain off. I know as critics, we're not allowed to say that, but I'm going to shut it off a little bit. Maybe actually put the notepad away. I know you won't, Josh, but I'm going to put the notepad away and I'm just going to take in from Russia with love, the movie voted on by our listeners, by our family members as the Bond movie, the Connery Bond installment they want us to start with as we get ready for No Time to Die. I think it's a blind spot for me in the Bond oeuvre, so I am looking forward to it. Are you implying that a Bond movie is not going to function as a meditation on original sin and free will? Mm-hmm. I mean, I yes. I think you're maybe selling him short there. Well, you know what? Let's see if we can still find a way to get to 40 minutes about From Russia with Love, Josh. <laughs> okay. That will, be, that will be quite the feat. You also get access to our monthly trivia spotting events. We were celebrating our 12th edition of Trivia Spotting. We called it Todd's 12 in honor of Thomas Todd, our quiz master who does such an amazing job. We have guest captains, special guest captains who are there to lead every team, groups of six to eight family members in this spirited competition. Returning captains, Mariah Gates, Michael Phillips, Nick Allen from RogerEbert.com, Steve Green from IndieWire. And then not only do we have Katie Rich from Vanity Fair join us, but Josh, how about Bing Liu and Joshua Altman from Minding the Gap and their new movie, All These Sons, which played at Tribeca, hopefully will be coming out soon so we can see it and our listeners can see it. They joined us and had a blast and they were great guests. And not only that, Joshua Altman's team won it all. Yeah, we've had this a couple times where a first time captain rolls in That's and true. takes home the big prize. Yeah. Mariah Gates 
won her first time and then won two more times. Kristen Lopez from IndieWire won her first time. I know there are others. Their team name was called Two Seconds Late to Pierce Brosden, which is a name reference you would only get if you'd participated in the previous trivia spotting the month before. We congratulate our winners, Andy Mitchell, Mitchell Beaupre, Brett Merriman, Bretton Zinger, and we also had Paulo Yama, Dave Fafaris, and Devin Josh Larson is my muse. Womble, <laughs> he always has so much fun with you, Josh, and his backgrounds yeah. on Zoom. I just do want to say for the record, not every team is just dudes. It's really not. We have That's true. a wonderful rotating group of women who join us every month for trivia spotting. That team was obviously very guy heavy. Yeah, I don't think I've been on an all dude team yet. So, uh, and Devin, I think I let down. Um, you know, he he likes to Photoshop uh, backgrounds based on something idiotic I said or an answer I gave. This is not to say that I did well on the last trivia spotting, but I I don't think I made quite enough of a fool of myself this time for Devin. We will see. If you would like to be part of the film spotting family, and if you'd like to participate in trivia spotting, tickets aren't on sale yet, but. We're going to have that event, we think, on Friday, August 20th. So save the date, patreon.com slash filmspotting. Warner Brothers presents Jordan, Bucks, Bunny, Special Delivery. Together, they just might save the world. Space Jam. You've never seen anything like it. Pop quiz, Josh. What's the plot of Space Jam? Oh, the original? Oh my goodness! Either one, um, indulge me. Well, I think I think this, the new one is yeah the most insane plot. I did read a synopsis. I think we might have on the show, and we both had instant headaches. So I've forgotten that the original something about monsters. You know, obviously, I know Jordan is in it. I don't think Alex's droogs are in it, which, from what I understand, they are in Space Jam Two. So really, right for coincidence spotting Adam, we should have reviewed Space Jam Two on this show along with A Clockwork Orange. Good point. Very good point. I'm just going to pretend you didn't say it. It's time for some poll results. A couple of weeks back, looking ahead for some reason to the release of Space Jam, <laughs> not two, a new legacy. Oh, I'm sorry, Josh. I'm sorry. Come on. And the NBA Finals. We asked, what is the best? basketball movie the options we gave you were spike lee's he got game steven soderbergh's high flying bird steve james hoop dreams hoosiers gina prince bythewood's love and basketball you could go with space jam a little bone we threw there at the 90s kids or what about the 80s kids like me who adored yes adored white men can't jump directed by ron shelton finally if none of those worked for you you could go off the grid you could go with other and write in your pick. Josh, how did it come out? Well, Film Spotting Nation not living up to reputation by the fact that High Flying Bird, the Soderbergh picture, last place, 2%. Uh, but then next came other 5% of the vote. Space Jam, only 6% of the vote. Love and Basketball received 8%. He got game 9%. And then real tight up here, a little bit of a jump between Hoosiers and White Men Can't Jump. Only one vote separated those two but White Men Can't Jump did get second place. It had 17% of the vote compared to Hoosiers, 16%. Film Spotting Nation does redeem themselves, though, with the winning vote, Adam. Steve James Hoop Dreams took this poll, 37% of the vote. Now, the mention of Soderbergh does remind me that I need to point out an egregious mistake I made. Oh, no. I think it was on our last show when we talked about Steven Soderbergh's new film. Was it no when Sudden you said move. he's infallible? 
No, that actually wasn't the mistake, Josh. Okay. It was when I suggested that maybe our producer and original co-host of Film Spotting, Sam Van Hallgren, was not as big of a Soderbergh fan as me. Now, while it is true that over the years, he maybe has started to wane in his appreciation or willingness to believe that he's infallible, Sam claims he started off as an even bigger acolyte mm. than me and went on to further suggest that if you go back and listen to our review of Bubble, I think from 2005, which I would just say, please nobody do, mm-hmm. that he was way more enthusiastic than I was. So, Sam, my apologies. Duly noted. We get to feedback from ENT McFarlane, who says, have you guys ever met a 90s kid? You know we don't actually love Space Jam, right? We're just going to go with the legend, not the <laughs> not the story there, okay? Or whatever the man who shot Liberty Valance quote actually is. We're just going to go with what we prefer, Ian. Just because we're nostalgic for it doesn't mean we can't see the light. You don't see us asking Adam and Josh where Kroll ranks in their top 10 favorite films. That's because it's number 11 for me. <laughs> Kroll. Adam's never seen Kroll. Come on. No, I haven't. It was on a lot. I, I skipped by it a yeah. lot on my way past HBO to Cinemax, but I never watched it. Yeah, right past Lady Hawk and Crawl. That's where you went. That's Here's right. Zach Hesting. Sometimes the heart and mind don't agree, and that can never be reconciled. Cut to the shot of a cold Indiana sunset over the rustling corn stalks on what had to be a chilly November night. That's where my basketball heart is. I played high school basketball in Indiana at a small school, and the cliches are true. Fan buses to the big game, a small town all but abandoned on game night, and a team that a community lives and dies with. Hoosiers gets it all exactly right. Every autumn, around the time high school basketball season starts up, I go back in time. I watch Hoosiers, sometimes alone and sometimes with my family. By the time we get to the final game, I can smell the popcorn and the hardwood. For me, that final game is the greatest sequence in a sports movie. Predictable? Sure. It's a true story, and I've seen that final shot go in 50 times. By the time we get to individual reactions of the townspeople in the crowd, I'm in tears. Every time. In my mind, I know Hoop Dreams is the best basketball movie, but it's hardly about basketball. So let me follow my heart on this one. Let me lace them up every November. Let me run the picket fence. I never get caught watching the paint dry. (laughs) Poetry (laughs) there. Poetry from Zach. An impassioned poetic plea from Zach Hesting. Well done. Hey, I like Hoosiers, and it's largely because Gene Hackman is Gene Hackman. And he is watchable and better than watchable in everything, including Hoosiers. I think he's really good in that film. And I also like to kind of watch Dennis Hopper and think of him as the dude from Rio Bravo, the drunk who's being redeemed, (laughs) Uh whether that's what the filmmakers were going for at all or not. So, yeah, I dig Hoosiers. I'm with you, Zach. Andy Bucati from KC says, my child of the 80s self would have chosen Hoosiers hands down. My college self, white men can't jump. My budding cinephile self, Hoop Dreams, and then eventually he got game. This is great. This is really accurate so far for me too, Josh. But the one that I've thought about more in the past decade, and the one I most definitely want to watch with my teenage daughter and tween son, is Love and Basketball. While it contains many sports movie tropes, her semi-autobiographical tale is clearly imbued with an authentic and underrepresented vision in the world of sports films. So I hope I can continue to evolve like Andy. That film from Gina Prince-Bythewood is one... I have not seen. Josh, I don't believe you have either, but you could correct me on that. I have not. So yeah, we got to get to it. Indeed we do. 
Here's Albert Malafront from Pasadena. Last year, my comment for the best jazz movie poll was, yeah, I'll take the one starring Denzel Washington directed by Spike Lee with a vote for Mo' Better Blues. I will use this comment again now for He Got Game and probably reuse in a future best biopic poll vote for Malcolm X, which I just saw for the first time last week in stunning 70 millimeter. Spike really nails whatever genre he goes for, huh? I got to look this up. He's got so many good films, but He Got Game might be in my top five Spike Lee movies. It's at least in the top six or seven. I also love the movie, Albert. Sean Means in Salt Lake City says, if limited to the poll options, obviously it's Hoop Dreams, though Love and Basketball ranks highly too. But how could you forget The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh? This ridiculous (laughs) 1979 comedy starring Julius Irving, Dr. J himself, as the star center of the failing Pittsburgh Pythons, whose owner, Jonathan Winters, is convinced by a psychic, Stockard Channing, to hire only players with the center's same astrological sign, Pisces, the fishes. Wow, I... I am aware of this movie. I had no idea that's actually the plot. The resulting team is, of course, a ragtag bunch of oddballs, including Harlem Globetrotters legend Meadowlark Lemon as a fast-dribbling reverend who become title contenders. A lot of familiar basketball faces and cameos, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Chick Hearn, and Marv Albert among them, and one of Channing's first big roles post-Greece. It may not be the best basketball movie, but it's probably the silliest, which counts for something. Does it, Josh? Does it count for something? I mean, I have not seen The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, and I have also not seen Kyrie Irving's Uncle Drew, but I'm wondering if (laughs) Uncle Drew is this generation's uh, Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. I'll have to do a double feature and report back at him. All right, here's Tom Morris. I voted for Other to nominate Blue Chips, a great underseen movie with Nick Nolte, Shaq, and Penny Hardaway, directed by William Friedkin. Being an Orlando Magic fan, this is required watching. Maybe that disclaimer is important here because I don't otherwise think anybody has to watch Blue Chips. Sorry. Oh, I thought you were going to say the Orlando Magic. No, Well, that too, Josh. Josh Ashenmiller says, I just have one question for everyone who voted for something other than white men can't jump. What is a quince? Well played, Josh. I got it. I got it. Me and like seven others got it, but that's good enough. One more from Alex Cartman. Can we include all 10 hours of The Last Dance? I don't know, Adam. Uh, all the rules are getting broken these days with streaming and TV and movies. Should we have put it in? I'm going to say that this now proves that Sam's poll question was one of our patented, deeply flawed film spotting poll question. The Last Dance should have been considered. Thanks to everyone who voted in the poll and left comments. It is time for a new poll. In a couple of weeks, we'll finally get a look at David Lowry's feverishly anticipated The Green Knight starring... Deb Patel, it got us thinking about other films set in the Middle Ages. I love that Sam had to do so much homework just to do this poll question, getting into all the definitions, really a college class here. Yeah, he's defining (laughs) the Middle Ages as a period of European history defined as between the 5th century and 15th century or from the fall of the Western Roman Empire to the Renaissance. Did you get all that, Josh? Yeah, I'm totally with it. Just give me the options. So like Top Gun, does it does it qualify? I'm my understanding if I'm if I'm following Sam correctly Uh is that Top Gun would not qualify. Okay, well, it's not here among the options. So that must be the case. The (laughs) options are The Adventures of Robin Hood. This is the 38 version with Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, directed by Michael Curtiz. Mel Gibson's Best Picture winning Braveheart is an option. John Borman's Excalibur. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. 
How about this one? Carl Theodor Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc from 1922, Bergman's The Seventh Seal, and the category of Other. So if you did want to go with Lady Hawk, Adam, <laughs> the Richard Donner film, how about Kenneth Branagh's Henry V? Uh, we've got Beckett, Lion in Winter, Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven, a more recent option there. A Knight's Tale. That's the one with Heath Ledger, I believe. Yeah. I think that came mm-hmm. up recently on the show. Timothy Chalamet in David Michaud's The King, another option. I believe you saw that one, Adam. So of those, Quite liked it. do you have an easy pick? Well, <laughs> of course it's not easy. You've got The Passion of Joan of Arc and The Seventh Seal, two all-timers, two cinematic masterpieces yeah set and, set in the time period but a little different if I, if we're using the green knight as a model i feel like you know i need i need some more swords and i need some sorcery okay personally I like this you've personally clearly given this a lot of thought and then along those lines the answer would have to be the seventh seal then at least over the passion of joan of arc josh is that where you're going um I like that logic. I might go with Borman's Excalibur here. I mean, it's just kind of like the epitome of the genre and really well done. Okay. Well, I'm dismayed and shocked that you didn't go other for your beloved Lady Hawk directed by Richard Donner, but there will be other polls, I'm sure. We would love to hear your picks. We'd love to hear your comments. You can now vote at filmspotting.net. It is a early voting case, Josh, that's rare. The comedy edging out the classics. And of course, by comedy, I'm referring to The Passion of Joan of Arc. Yes, I assumed. Now everyone understands why I've got Top Gun on the brain this episode. That's Sandy Lamb's cover of Berlin's Take My Breath Away, as heard in Wong Kar Wai's 1988 directing debut, As Tears Go By. It's the first film in our World of Wong Kar Wai marathon. As we mentioned earlier on in the show, this marathon is inspired by the Criterion Collection's new World of Wong Kar Wai box set, which collects seven of the director's films, all recently restored by Wong himself. The collection is also currently streaming on the Criterion channel. The seven movies made between 1988 and 2004 represent most, but not all, of the director's work. Not included are his 94 wuxia film, Ashes of Time, 2013's Kung Fu epic, The Grand Master, and his 2007 English-language debut, My Blueberry Nights. But these seven stories of tragic romance and unfulfilled desire all told in Wong's lush poetic style, mark him as one of the most distinctive and influential directors of his era. The films in this collection also share a number of the same collaborators, cinematographer Christopher Doyle, editor, production, and costume designer William Chang Suk-Ping, and actors Maggie Chung, she's in four films, and Tony Lung, who is in five films. We're going to get to six of the titles in the collection over the course of the marathon. The seventh one, 2004's 2046. We won't give a full proper review, but we are going to fit it in and it'll be in consideration when we do our awards. But let's start with Wong's debut as tears go by. A lot of people have described this as Wong's riff on Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets. The title is even taken from one of Scorsese's favorite bands, the Rolling Stones. As Tears Go By was a huge box office success in Hong Kong back in 88. 
based on what you know of Wong Kar Wai, Adam, I think you've seen In the Mood for Love and you've seen Chungking Express. Um, Grandmaster as well. Grand, yeah, that's and right. We did, that, we did that on the show in 2046. So you're pretty familiar with him. I would say, given that, any surprises here when you went back and saw his debut? Well, I don't know if they were necessarily surprises, but being able to see how Wong's filmmaking career began, starting to see the foundation of some of his familiar tropes and concerns start to be explored was exactly the reason why we embarked on this marathon. Even though I said there are four films that I have seen, there are some big titles here that we're going to get to that both of us need to see. And what's great about these marathons is seeing them in order and then being able to properly and truly contextualize films that are rightfully revered, like Chunking Express and In the Mood for Love. And it's funny, before I knew anything about this movie or how it did fit into his body of work and his influences, I was watching the character fly. It was maybe about halfway through the movie. And you're seeing that energy where he just is always getting into trouble, completely unable to be calm or quiet or rational in any situation. The bravado, the, the totally unfounded bravado and fearlessness, despite being in precarious situation after precarious situation and more accurately putting himself in precarious situation after precarious situation. It's always of his own doing, almost always. I'll say exclusively of his own doing. And there's that bit of kind of masochism and self-hatred and delusion to him. And the whole time I'm watching Josh, I'm thinking, which character does this remind me of? Mm -hmm. Who is this guy in cinema history? And it finally hit me. Of course, it's De Niro's Johnny Boy from Mean Streets. There's even a big pool hall brouhaha, yeah. just like there is in Mean Streets. And there's one scene, and there's surely multiple, where the camera follows him through an alleyway when he's going in to have a conversation with his big brother, his his protector, the main character, played by Andy Lau, Wei. And he's going down an alley, and it's not a steady cam shot, but it's handheld the way it follows behind him. And there's definitely shades there of Scorsese. You're feeling the Mean Streets influence and inspiration all over this movie it all fell into place for me then the crime milieu the complicated relationship between the two men its presentation of fragile masculinity in general the way these characters can never back down they can never really be vulnerable the use of popular music not just take my breath away but there's a needle drop at the end of this movie that's pure scorsese rock and roll but here's the thing as Tears Go By isn't a Scorsese movie the same way Mean Streets wasn't just a compilation of all of Scorsese's influences. These are distinct, unique pieces of work by two really great artists, even if they're both fledgling in their filmmaking careers. There are two paths here for Wei. He can, he can continue the life in the city, on the streets, this life of crime, or he can go to the, the country he can go straight with the woman he loves, live this life of propriety and respectability, an option that I think is not only one that seems elusive to him in this movie, but it's never really one that even seems to be actually something he can choose. But none of it is framed 
theologically, the way Scorsese frames it in Mean Streets. It's not about heaven or hell or sin or redemption like it is for Harvey Keitel in that film as Michael. And then, of course, there are those distinct stylistic touches as well that I think we'll get into. So what did you make of As Tears Go By? Yeah, you've well laid out, you know, the the references here to Mean Streets in particular, and they are right there. I had the same experience. I hadn't read anything about the film, so I wasn't aware that it was commonly understood as slightly a riff, especially in the character of Fly. But as soon as, you know, maybe Fly's second or third scene, I, I was like, oh, that's that's De Niro. So, so that nicely frames it in conjunction with Mean Streets, but let me move to why it's distinct, because as you said, it's also incredibly idiosyncratic. And I think that's maybe the main way is Scorsese is more interested in theme, possibly, um, whereas Wong is first, shall we say, and foremost interested in the aesthetics. Obviously, Scorsese, a kinetic aesthetic filmmaker. That's not to say yeah. he's not. But here, that seems to be the priority for Wong. And what surprised me about this film, knowing at least that it was his debut and knowing I did know it was, you know, a gangster film, I thought, OK, so maybe he got um, a genre assignment. And as happens with eventual masters of cinema, you're going to see um little flashes here or there of their early voice working within mm -hmm. the confines. This is pure Wong. That's what surprised me. This is like no one else would have made, including Martin Scorsese, a gangster film like this. You know, he's not as interested in plot. He's not as interested in dialogue. He's interested in pure movement. He's interested in the music that we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. He's interested in color. But before he's interested in theme. Um, and then as we see across his career, this is going to be the same no matter the time, place, or story that he's working in. So I was astonished at how, you know, even though there are other films of his that I like better, I think are more of an mm -hmm. achievement, at how much of a pure Wong Kar Wai experience this was. And it starts early on. Consider the scene where the Maggie Chung character, Nyor, she goes to Wei's apartment, her distant cousin, who she's going to stay with while she's receiving these medical treatments. That's how they come together. You get the sense that they may have never met before. If they did, maybe it was long ago when they were kids. She's she's laying on the couch in his apartment, I believe. The TV is on. We don't see what she's watching, but it's just casting this rose glow. Like a glow that a TV wouldn't cast, really. We're not used to it, at least in movies. We're used to like the blue light, right? But this is almost a rose. And it jumps out at you right away. And, and as they become a romantic couple, you get the sense it was hinting at that, right? It's this blossoming that the color is doing. And throughout this movie, we can talk about, and we probably will, the ways that composition, framing, and color do the work yeah. of dialogue and plot. And and that's something that I think Wong would only go on to perfect, but it was so thrilling to see it in really such, you know, incredible form here. I agree with you. I will say that maybe the less charitable view of your distinction between Wong and Scorsese with this movie and that idea that he's focused more on aesthetics than theme would be that you could say, well, maybe he just doesn't quite know yet how to marry story and theme with aesthetics, as well as Scorsese does even in Mean Streets. And I do think Mean Streets is the better movie. But wouldn't but you say, you, 
Yeah. Would you say going forward? Interested in that. I don't think that he more closely weds those two things in his later films either. It's something we can watch as the marathon goes on. Exactly. Um, But to me, from what I've seen, he's always kind of prioritized um, getting to the theme through these purely cinematic elements. Yeah. And I do want to talk about the color red specifically a little bit more here because obviously the films we've seen well known about Wong's work. He loves that neon aesthetic and the way red shows up here in the neon lighting, but also in all sorts of ways, including the way you just described it really dominates one conversation in particular that stood out to me watching this movie. And it's when those two men, the two friends, the one who's always getting into trouble and the one who's always having to come to his rescue and put his own life in danger and really who remains stuck in this life because he always has to care for this man. And that's the the great dilemma. They're having a conversation after another one of these outbursts where Fly has made a fool of himself and harmed someone, even if it wasn't actually physically harmed multiple people or at least insulted them at this wedding reception. They're up on a roof. And the red light coming from a nearby building or even from the roof of that building itself, it it's so overwhelming that it bathes these men. And it's not it's not a pure red. It's kind of this pinkish red mm-hmm. hue. And actually, that dominates every scene those two men are in together. Red is the dominant color. And I think that it's by design, obviously, that we get that dichotomy where we'll get those splashes of red in scenes like the one you mentioned with his love interest when they have their first night together and then they're walking the next day and she's wearing that white skirt and that bright red sweater. Red can, of course, signify passion. It can signify love and romance. And also in this movie, often red is the color of blood. There's plenty of blood in this film, which is also at the core of his relationship with Fly. And the thing sort of that tethers him to this life in the city. It is just riddled with violence and punishment. Here's where the Scorsese comes in too. There's some of that same use of red very memorably in Mean Streets. Though for Scorsese, again, it takes on this kind of hellish context. And that really isn't necessarily the case here, even as I think the movie wants to suggest that he is sort of stuck in this violent world that he can never really get out of. Again, it's not so much about sin and not sinning as it is just a different way of life, an alternative way of life, a way to be a better man that never really truly presents itself to him. But that color red really underlines everything about the key relationships in this movie. I also like the use of red in the moment where the two of them, they've both been beaten up at this point for, again, trouble fly has gotten them into. They're in a dark alley and fly Mm kind of gets up and stumbles away Uh, towards the back of the screen to exit the alley and you notice everything is dark around him but at the end of the alley where the street is this glowing red it's it's kind of like he seems like he thinks he's escaping but he's not he's heading towards further violence and that's an example i think there are basically two two pictorial frameworks going on here um Compositions of doom and compositions of longing. And red is so often, not exclusively, but often used as in that alley to signify doom. And then the longing, which we associate more, at least I do, with Wong, you know, are are in 
moments like uh, the one I mentioned, which is a variation on red by the TV, but also I think you see it in the compositions too. And I love how Wong uses staircases in this movie. There are two shots in particular, probably more, but that stand out to me. Um, when Nyor and Wei, he has followed her back home to the island where she lives on. Mm-hmm. They've had this tentative night together, hanging out. Um, he's staying at a hotel. I believe her family runs the restaurant below the hotel is how it seems. At any yeah. rate, you walk up these stairs to go to get into the hotel. And there's kind of this moment of what are they going to do now? What, what's what's going to happen in their relationship? And they separate. They're going to go their separate ways, you think. He walks up those staircases, and then she just kind of lingers at the bottom. And Wong lets the moment rest there where we wonder what is going to happen. And then sure enough, she slowly trails after him. So it's it's kind of a moment of longing and then implied consummation, right? But that's the yeah. thing. Like the consummation, that's never as sumptuous as the expectation. In a Wong film, you get the sense. Um, the longing is more exquisite than the actual love. A- and that moment captures it. And then it's nicely paired later with a staircase at the harbor where he's going to get off the boat. She's awaiting for his arrival. This mm-hmm. is either the next day or two days later. And again, she's at the bottom of the stairs looking up, waiting to see if he's going to come down from them. So those are just two other examples. Color there used very well. Also, you know, I believe the staircase at the harbor has this kind of yellowish glow to it um, that were just kind of through the actual composition and the use of the production design, we know everything emotionally we need to know. They don't really have to say anything to each other. I've got one more for you. And here's the impact that a smart critic, even just by implying or suggesting something can have on you. I normally don't want to have anything in my mind at all when I'm watching a movie like this, but I couldn't help that I'm looking at Twitter earlier in the day and I see your tweet, Josh. That mentions oh, yeah, I put these images up you there. You can't wait. You can't wait to talk about the staircases in the movie. So that was in my head watching the film. It made me pay a little bit closer attention to it than maybe I would have. And, you know, on this episode, we mentioned coincidence spotting a few times. We go back to A Clockwork Orange and we were talking about free will and choice. That's how I really see the stairs in this movie. It comes back to this idea again of the two paths that you can take. And the stairs are the literal path, right? They're Mm -hmm. the bridge between the two worlds. The literal two worlds of the city, coming from the city to come out to the island. The more metaphorical idea of leaving that life behind to come embrace a new, simpler way of life, a more romantic way of life. But then you see it in other ways as well. It's not only in the comings and goings of those two characters or when he comes to visit nor it's also in the scene you mentioned where she goes up the stairs to be with him she pauses she lingers she goes slowly that's her in that moment choosing yeah which one of the worlds she's going to inhabit yeah she could stay in the world her world which is the opposite of his world the one he's coming from she's coming from a world that's safe And everything is understandable, and she knows exactly what everything means and who this man is, this doctor, that she says at one point she'd probably marry if he hadn't come back to the island to visit her, if if Wei hadn't. And in that moment, she's making the decision. Walking up those stairs isn't just the decision to sleep with him, right, or to spend the night with him. It's, am I willing to go here? Am I willing to potentially move to the city, to give myself over to him and the way of life? 
that we're probably stuck in together because he probably can't really leave it. He's probably not actually going to come here. There's another moment too, Josh, that I wonder if you noticed. It doesn't quite have the same visual resonance these other staircase scenes do that we're talking about where it's very clear that Wong has paid particular attention to how they're lit and kind of the the scale, if you will, of the staircase. But when he goes back, maybe I don't want to give too many spoilers here about this movie, even though it came out in 1988. But in this moment where he makes a pretty fateful decision to go back and yet again rescue mm-hmm. his friend, he has to walk up a staircase mm. in order to get to him. And I would propose that that probably wasn't by accident. Probably not. Yeah, that, I I like that reading a lot. Good stuff. Nice stuff there, Adam. Thank you. All, of course, prompted by you. So, you know what? This is this is the give and take that we get here on Film Spotter. <laughs> well, I can't. I Really, I'm so excited to go through these. As we said, we've seen a couple of them already, but clearly we've given evidence that these are movies that deserve to be watched very closely, which you can always do better in a second time. Um, so, yeah, I can't wait to do that. This is going to be really fun. Well, even I'll mention just real quick that the aesthetic choice to do that kind of half speed technique, which then I think is double printed to give that effect of these action scenes, like everything is sort of otherworldly. Yeah, they're like, it's like smeared somehow it looks. Yeah. Yeah. If you watch, it's not just something that Wong is utilizing in the action set pieces themselves. It's even used, I think, the first time we see it, it's used just when Wei walks out of his apartment. It's like the moment he opens the door. It sounds right, yeah. To go enact vengeance. It's as if he becomes a different person, and everything around him then changes. He walks out the door, and he walks and approaches the men who hurt Fly, and that's all even. And again, he's just walking at this point, walking in. We're seeing the men just kind of having fun, going about their lives, and pretending that what they just did to Fly isn't really that important to them. He's already in this mindset, this otherworldly sort of perspective that Wong gives us through that visual choice. So yeah, I think there's going to be a lot to dive into here as we get through this marathon. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that not only does the movie use take my breath away very prominently, this huge hit from a movie that came out a few years earlier, obviously top gun, But I'm not crazy, Josh. The moment when Take My Breath Away starts playing, I'm pretty sure Andy Lau is sitting on a bus or the train and he's wearing. Oh, they're the same glasses. They're the same sunglasses. He's wearing a white t shirt and he's wearing Ray Ban aviators. Yep. No, it's it's another it's as obvious as the De Niro reference. I mean, even Debbie is like, what, he's Tom Cruise now? So, (laughs) yeah, definitely intentional. I'm going to say Andy Lau looks even better in short shorts than Tom Cruise does. I mean, can you imagine a volleyball match, a one-on-one volleyball match between the two of them? I can. I can. That's the best movie of the year that you're describing, Josh. All right. As Tears Go By is currently available on the Criterion channel. Next up in the world of Wong Kar Wai Marathon, 1990s Days of Being Wild. Another blind spot for me, not for you, Josh. I have seen Days of Being Wild, and also we should clarify, because a listener clarified for me. Oh, how about this? <laughs> I've also seen Chungking Express. I, yeah, I, think I thought now, so. In my defense, I think I speculated 
when you asked this. Like, I think I've seen that, but I'm not sure. I'm going right. to have to watch I it to know for crazy. sure. And then, <laughs> then a listener pointed out, yeah, you listed it among your top five films of 1994. So yeah. episode which, 390. Yeah. So many, many shows ago. So give me a break there. And I did watch it just for that list. Obviously never wrote about it. I should have. That would have been a good reminder. But yeah, I've seen Chung King Express. I've seen Days of Being Wild. Cannot wait to rewatch both. I'm going to call your editor and complain <laughs> that you didn't write a review. More information about that marathon, filmspotting.net slash marathons. That is our show. All right. If you want to talk to us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at filmspotting. I'm at Larson on film. In the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can vote in the film spotting poll. What is the best movie set in the Middle Ages? You must also submit a dissertation that defines exactly what are the Middle Ages? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out this weekend in limited release, Pig. I'm being told it's John Wick meets the Truffle Hunters with Nick Cage. I'm also being told that early reviews are very positive. And I can tell you this, the trailer at the music box before Fellowship of the Ring went over like gangbusters. People Did were... It hooting and hollering i almost wanted to stand up and, and say but i've heard it's actually really good <laughs> because it didn't play that way okay summertime is also out this is a movie that takes place over the course of a hot summer day in la the lives of 25 young angelinos intersect carlos lopez estrada the director of blind spotting directs summertime and roadrunner a film about anthony bourdain which i highly recommend and say is worth seeing whether you feel like you know much about him or his work or not. In wide release, Escape Room, Tournament of Champions, it's a sequel to the 2019 film we didn't see or discuss, and Space Jam, A New Legacy. Oh, oh, you know a, what we've got here, Adam? We have a Sophie's Choice scenario. Yeah, which that's one what it sounds like. You, you have to see one of these films. Uh-huh. Which one is it going to be? Escape Room, <laughs> wow. Tournament, that, Tournament of Champions. <laughs> that was I am. A, that was a Wong Kar Wai style pause you gave just us out of there spite. i mean it was just so, out of spite yeah you hate a new legacy you I hate, hate space, space jam, jam too i do we, we got to get to the really bottom of that <laughs> next week not only will we have days of being wild we will have our top five beach scenes Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogeren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Sorry, I love couscous, Josh. It's hard not to eat it. Go for it. <clears throat> okay. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.